Well, hello there. This is Laura Camacho of the Speak Up with Laura Camacho podcast, and welcome to this episode. You're in for a treat. Today is an international episode because our guest is from the UK, so you can have the pleasure of listening to his cool accent. His name is Richard Newman, and he is a communication specialist in persuasion in the UK. And he has won awards for speech writing. There's a Cicero Grand Award, which I think, you know, Cicero got his head cut off because of his communication being so good. So that's kind of a funny name for an award, I think. But anyway, he has won that award. And so we're going to talk a little bit about storytelling because I know all of you, like myself, are always looking for ways to make our stories more effective, more impactful without having to talk too much or, you know, be drawn out going on and on and on. We're going to talk about presence and he's going to share some research. This is Richard Newman, by the way, share some research about we can convince 42% more people. I'm a little skeptical always of those numbers, but if you can persuade a few more people to go along with what you're offering, with your plan, with your proposal or your business or getting you that promotion, that's always helpful. And the cool thing about Richard is that he has lived with Tibetan, Tibetan, I'm not sure how you say that, with these monks, Buddhist monks who don't talk at all. So that will be interesting. And my favorite topic about introverts. And so that's one thing we have in common is that we're both card-carrying introverts who, if we were independently financially like trust fund material, well, I would be working in a library reading books all day. And he's going to just talk about how to use communication to further your career, make things better for people. And I'm super excited to bring him to you. I hope you're doing well. So I am going to pass the mic to Richard Newman, who is here from Farnham Commons, which is not the same as Farnham. So that's west of London, for those of you who know your UK geography. So Richard started his communication career in a Tibetan monastery in India. So I want to know, why did you go there and how did that lead to your getting into the communication business? Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Sure. So what happened for me is when I was finishing high school, most of my friends were planning to go to university. I was at the kind of school where 99% of people would go off to university afterwards. And I was at a place where I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do with my life, but university didn't seem to be it. And so in the final sort of uh, year, we had a few people doing lectures that would come in to inspire us on different things. And one person who came in he was a couple of years older than me. I recognized him as having been a friend of my sister. He was in her year. And he came in and he said, hey, look, I've just had this experience where I've traveled through the Himalayas to an orphanage and helped people who really need my help. And it was mind blowing. And you should all go and do the same sort of thing. And he said, quick show of hands, who is thinking about taking a year off before going to university? And maybe three people in the room put their hand up. And to my surprise, one of those hands was mine. And I thought, why is my hand going up? I'm, that's not my plan. Like I've got university places offered to me. I, I think I know where I'm heading. And I thought, no, this, this sounds like what I want. And so I then spoke to an organization that organizes this sort of adventurous trip. And they were trying to persuade me to go and teach acting at a drama school for wealthy Indian children. And I said, no, 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 you've missed the point here. I really want to go and work with people who need my help. 
who are in a remote location. And they said, well, there is this monastery. Nobody's actually ever been there as a teacher before, but we found out that they need a teacher and they're sort of cut off from their community. They need to learn how to speak English. And I said, that's the place. Sign me up. And I was particularly keen to go and do this. I wanted to go and explore the world and do something good because I'd had a really comfortable upbringing. I particularly wanted to work on that area of communication because I knew that I'd really struggled with communication when I was younger. I'd always been told I was shy. I was introvert. I didn't find out until I was 44 that I was actually autistic, which is like quite a recent diagnosis for me. So I didn't really know where my challenges with communication were coming from. I just knew that I was really passionate about it, wanted to explore that area. So I ended up in this Tibetan monastery where they'd never had a teacher before. All they really had was for a blackboard, they had like three pieces of wood nailed together and painted black. And there was one piece of chalk. And the classroom was their kitchen. And we didn't even have electricity a lot of the time. We would just use candles. And so there I was trying to figure out how to teach them English. And the big challenge being they didn't speak English. They spoke Tibetan, Nepali, and Hindi. And I spoke a bit of French and a bit of German, none of which was useful. So we had to use body language and tone of voice to connect. And that's something that has then really helped me in my whole career to figure out a way of communicating with people beyond words. So where I see words are so important for communication, being able to communicate beyond those is a skill that I was able to pick up there. Very interesting. It reminds me, well, of a couple of stories. I just spent a very short amount of time in Lesotho, which is a little country land-wise, landlocked inside of South Africa. And it is a different experience. For me, even the lack of electricity was second to not having water, (laughs) not being able to just wash your hands whenever you felt like it. I was mentally prepared for not electricity, mentally prepared for the outdoor latrine, but the not having running water was very mind-blowing to me. That's a very cool experience. And also the part about nonverbal when people don't speak the language. And then there's, of course, when you do speak the right words or words that are close to being right, but you still, your message falls flat. And I'll just throw in a little plug for my, I have an 18-month-old granddaughter visiting and not to get political, but she truly is a threat to democracy. She is just a Tasmanian devil and she doesn't speak, but she does use her whole body to manipulate me and she's quite successful at it. I've been just noticing in the few days she's been here how powerful body language can be. And when you want to communicate and you don't have the shared language, that you'll do almost anything to figure out how to get that across, right? It's interesting, isn't it? And I found that living in Spain years and years and years ago, that I would say what I thought were the right words, but the meaning didn't quite land the way it was supposed to. So that's a whole nother aspect of communication. So you did end up teaching them English, I take it, right? What was the ticket to that? Well, the real ticket to it, I found, was congruency. This was a big lesson for me, something I didn't understand before, and it's helped me ever since, is that if I was trying to teach them the word excited, If I didn't look excited and I didn't sound excited, they didn't know what the word meant. So I could have been saying pineapple. I had to have everything working together. And the challenge of that sometimes was that this young kid who was just trying to figure out how to teach people, and some of the monks I was teaching, they're like 50, 55 years old. They actually didn't know how old they were, but they, they looked about like that old. 
So there I was aged 18 doing this. And some of the lessons I'd approached them and I'd maybe be feeling a bit tired because it was in the evening and I'd been teaching at a local school in the morning. So I've been teaching all day. I was maybe a little bit confused. Occasionally I'd be feeling a bit frustrated. And then I'd say a word and they'd be looking at me thinking, does he mean tired? Does he mean confused? Does he mean frustrated? Like, what does he mean? And so I had to put all of those things to one side and think, whatever this word is, I need to convey it through my nonverbal communication in a way that everything is heading in one direction. I still teach people today where, you know, you're mentioning people who are in your audience are very often people who are leaders, often within the complex areas of work. And so, so many times I go off to a conference and I will see somebody who's speaking on stage and they will say something like, hi, everyone. Thanks for coming to the conference. We're having an amazing year and I hope you have a great day today. And the numbers are looking fantastic. And I think, you know, tell your face what you mean, because people are looking at you thinking that you are depressed about the numbers. So you have to make sure that your body language, tone of voice and words all match and that you are completely present in the moment that you're communicating to really make a difference. And so going back to what you're saying with your 18 month old child that you're interacting with, we see this when we have young children, you can see this with like animals as well. They're totally present in the moment and they use everything they can in their capacity to communicate. We have this little dog who I think she's coming up for three years old. And I swear that she's sort of a human (laughs) trapped inside a dog because she's constantly trying to communicate with us, looking at me like, (laughs) what do I have to do to help you understand what I'm trying to say here? And so she uses her entire body totally present, as do my children. But when we get later in life, we get knocked down a bit. We get a bit worn down by life. And then we find that we're sort of carrying armor that is holding us back from the communication. I've heard so many people say to me that they've been told by their boss that they shouldn't gesture because it makes them look silly. Or they've been told by someone around them that their voice doesn't sound like it's serious enough. And so what ends up is they end up, you know, going into robot mode with no movements and going into a flat voice, right? Which is just not human. That's not what we interact well with. Correct. I'm sure you've had the same experience. You'll be talking to a client who wants your help and having this animated, interesting conversation. And then it's like, okay, so I'm, we're going to practice this presentation. And then They totally turn into this robot. You're like, what happened to that interesting person I was just talking to? And I love the analogy carrying armor because there's a perceived risk, right? That if I am not a robot telling you about how great my plan is, then you're going to think I'm silly or not serious, right? It's, a, I think, a false idea of what credibility is. Would you say or am I off in left field? What do you think? Absolutely. I mean, people have this sense that to make something sound important, then they need to look serious and speak on a monotone. And the irony is that if you speak on a monotone, nothing's important because it all sounds the same. And so I often talk to people about saying, you know, look at the news. If someone who is presenting the news is trying to convey a message, they're not on a monotone. They'll be going through a deep, serious voice about today's most serious issues. And then they gradually shift across to talk about a new baby panda that's happening at San Diego Zoo. And they'll, they'll do this intonation shift that tells you this is how you're supposed to feel right now. And, and emphatically hitting key words and even doing small gestures, even if they are slightly contained, they'll be doing those small gestures on camera to emphasize key words. And so you can see people doing that who are great at making speeches, great at presenting on TV, 
And it's actually what they're doing is they're tapping into the instincts that we all have. So I, I wrote a book a few years back called You Were Born to Speak. And the whole message behind it was to say, if you want to be a great communicator, you need to get rid of the habits that you've learned as an adult and get back to how free and how committed you were to communication when you were younger, before people started to tease you, mock you, beat you down and tell you not to do those things. Because when we are younger, like even when we were a year old, we learn how to stand with gravitas. Because if you don't stand with gravitas, you fall over. So if you're learning to stand up for the first time, if you put your feet too close together, you fall over. If you put your feet splayed apart in different directions, you fall over. But eventually you learn that if you stand with your feet shoulder width apart, with your weight evenly placed on, on either feet, then suddenly you stand and you've gone from being on all fours to being on two legs. And you have this sense of gravitas. And if you stand in that same position when you're older, you have gravity working with you, not against you. So you're tapping into a very simple instinct that all human beings have. So often great communication is about just breaking down the barriers that you've put up that you think you're, are required and coming back to something more instinctive. That's so, so good. I love that. Yeah, that monotone means nothing is important. And standing like a toddler, <laughs> I'm going to take a picture of my granddaughter, see if I can catch her, because you're absolutely right, because I've noticed also they walk with their legs a little bit further apart than we do, which gives a funny effect. Absolutely. If they don't stand like that, they will fall down. And, and that is such a good posture for public speaking. So how did you get from international exposure? You and I have both experienced that when you don't have a language, you have to find other ways to communicate. And yet you have done actually published research on communication. So did you go into academia? Like, tell me about your research and how did you get that if you went from high school to a monastery, for heaven's sakes? A quick whistle stop tour through that is that I worked at the monastery for six months. I then came back to the UK and studied acting for three years, a brilliant London acting school. And there we, we were learning how to sit, how to stand, how to breathe and how to walk in a way that would impact an audience. And so it was kind of funny because I thought, I'm sure I came here to learn how to act. And they're like, no, no, I'm going to teach you today how to sit. Now, this day, I'm going to teach you how to breathe. And so you learn those things, figuring out, you know, how do you bring a story to life through those nonverbal signals? And then when I started my company, which I've been running for 23 years now, at the time, it was like an accident. It was a hobby. Somebody said to me, it was my hairdresser, in fact, he said, oh, you're interested in, you're interested in body language and you, you, you studied acting? Well, why don't you come and do a session for my hairdressers? I'll give you a free haircut, do two hours, like teaching them how to communicate. And I said, I don't know how to do that. And he said, well, I'll give you a free haircut. Away you go. So I did it and they really liked it. And word of mouth spread from that hair salon to other companies who were getting like their hair cut there and said, hey, who's this guy? So I started going and 120,000 people later, I'm still doing it. But what happened was after I'd been doing it for about uh, 14 years, I realized that I've been looking at all the research that was available back over the last few decades on communication. And some of it was quite dated, but also some of it was quite limited in what you could prove and what you couldn't. And so I was at the point where I thought between myself and my team, we were teaching things that we knew were true. We were working with clients all over the world, but we just didn't have the science to back up what we were teaching in some of those aspects. And so I went to work with University College of London. I spoke to their, the head of psychology, Adrian Furnham, and I said, I want to put this research project together. And he said, first of all, when I presented it to him, he said, this is never going to work. 
This is too big. You don't know what you're doing. Forget it. It's never going to happen. And we worked together for about 18 months in the end of refining what this study would be and how it would work and how it would therefore prove what I was looking for. And by the time we went to run it, he said, just so you're aware, before you get the results back, this will probably end up proving nothing. So the results that you get back will probably say nothing at all, or you might disprove what you're currently teaching. And so you'll have to stop teaching it. And I said, that's okay. I just want to know the answers. I want to know if this is working or not. And so we put together this test where essentially the design of it was we wanted to see, could you say the same words and wear the same clothes and be the same person and yet slightly shift your nonverbal behavior and get a totally different reaction from someone you're speaking to? So to make this work, we had to prove that it would work for men and women. So we had four actors in our videos, two male, two female. We also had to check your skin color didn't make a difference. We had two with lighter skin, two with darker skin. We had to prove that your age didn't make a difference. So we went through prosthetic makeup with them to make them look 30 years older in some of the videos we created. And we had to prove that it would work everywhere as well. And so in the end, we involved more than 2,000 people in the study, people from across Asia, Europe, and across the Americas. And we had the actors in there, they'd say the same words over and over again on these videos that were 30 seconds long. And in each video, they made a slight shift. So they went from the most common bad habits that we see people using every day in communication and gradually shifted across to what we felt would be the most effective style of communicating for this message. And we were hoping for maybe like a 5% increase in how confident you looked or, or maybe a 7% increase in how convincing you were. Is That's what we were looking for. And when I went to sit with the team from UCL, I was sitting with the head of statistics from our team, Alastair McClelland, and he passed me this piece of paper. And it was, it was like his hand was slightly shaking. And I said, what's happening? And he said, for these statistics to mean anything, you need the number one on this sheet. So, so one or above is good. Because I was looking at it thinking, I don't know what this means. He said, you've got a 16 on this sheet. He said, in 35 years, I have rarely seen statistics that are as well-proven as what you've got on this study. And so what we showed is that any human being can, no matter what your background is, you can slightly shift your nonverbal behavior and people will react very differently to you, even if you're wearing the same clothes, saying the same words. And we got to the point where with one part of it, we looked at, would they vote for you in an election? And by making a couple of small shifts everyone can make, you can get 58% more people to vote for you in an election by making these couple of small shifts. So it was really exciting to look at, but also exciting to know, well, the things that we've been teaching people internationally, they really work. They genuinely work for everyone. From everyone. <laughs> That's a relief. <laughs> you don't have to get a refund. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thank goodness. All right. I'm not letting you go until you tell us about these ships. I mean, that's what we're all hanging on to find out how we can get more votes. <laughs> well, that's all we have time for today. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Buy the book. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so there's a couple of simple things that every person can do. Firstly, one of the areas we looked at, which we, you know, we were talking about earlier, is gestures. Because you know, I've had so many people come up to me and say to me, look, Richard, when I'm going in to do a presentation, a meeting, I just don't know what to do with my hands. I don't know. I, I don't know how to gesture. And I say to them, really, because if you went to a bar and someone bought you a drink and said, tell me about your weekend, do you really sit there not knowing how to move your hands? And they go, oh, no, in that situation, it's fine. I can, you know, I can move around. But when I'm in a job interview or a presentation, I'm not sure what to do. And so essentially what you need to do to have good gestures is you need to do what you're normally doing subconsciously and you need to do it consciously. 
So how do you do that? Well, we tested all sorts of different gestures, different things that I've seen people do, and I'm sure you have as well, which is firstly, we looked at what if you do gestures that I would label nervous, limp gestures. So sometimes you see people with their gestures, their arms are by their side, and they sort of occasionally flap them up and down because they think, well, I should probably gesture. They don't really want to do it. It's sort of half-hearted. If they were sitting down, the gesture would be below the table. So you're sort of aware their arms are moving a bit, but you can't see their hands. And that one was the worst gesture that we tested. If you keep everything else the same and you do a low limp gesture, people think you are not confident, you're not convincing, they wouldn't vote for you, all these things. Then we tested, what if you do no gestures? What if you don't move at all? Because we've heard so many people say, well, that, you know, that's a good thing because it makes you look serious. Again, you get terrible ratings. People are not interested. So the ones that we found that worked universally, and importantly, I'm sure people are aware that some gestures are culture specific. So if you do thumbs up or the OK symbol, it means different things in different countries. But there are certain gestures that are universal. So palms up and palms down means the same thing everywhere. So when I was back living in the monastery and I went to haggle for food from street vendors, I could use palms up and palms down in my negotiation because it means the same thing everywhere. Palms up in a negotiation means, come on, what can we do? I'm being open with you. Let's keep the negotiation going. Palms down means that's my final offer. And everybody understands that. So palms up is open, palms down is closed. So we tried this in the study. And what we found is very simply that if you have palms up gestures, and importantly, the palms need to be in a position where they are between your shoulder and waist height. So if you go too high, you look overly dramatic. If you go too low, then it looks too limp. So it's between shoulder and waist height, and it needs to be slightly away from the body. And this is a mistake I see so many people making with their gestures, is they gesture with their elbows locked against the side of their body. And their, their arms go out, but their, uh, sorry, their hands go sideways, but their arms don't. And suddenly it makes you look very low status or apologetic. Almost like a mechanical doll. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, so you've got to flow like a human being would do when they're naturally telling a story. And so if you have your palms up for open statements and palms down, for closed statements, then we found there was a massive surge of how effective people were in how confident, how convincing they are, how good a leader people thought they were going to be, and so on, by having congruent gestures. And the important thing I say to people on this subject of gestures is you don't just use those two. But if you think about it like this, if you're feeling self-conscious and thinking, what should I do with my hands? then just get back in the flow with palms up and palms down. So if you imagine this like playing tennis, it's a bit like doing forehand and backhand. You know, you can get through most of the match by doing forehand and backhand because you need them to play the game. But then when you get in your flow, when you're gesturing, you might do all kinds of gestures just to sort of mimic something or describe a place or a position that you're aiming for in a certain meeting. Then allow those things to happen. But you just need to make sure that you sort of start the engine. You get things going with those gestures happening. So. That was one of the simple pieces that I was so pleased that we were able to prove because there's so many people out there convinced that they need to do no gestures or apologetic gestures and or that they need to overthink their gestures. You really don't. You just need to get back in the flow and make sure that your gestures match the words. Love that. That is so good. Yeah. So I'm just going to recap Richard's message because it's so important and it's going to get you more votes, everybody. So you're welcome. Palms up is an open invitation. It's welcoming. It's really offering a connection to the people. But then the palms down is like, but, but not no more. <laughs> no mas. Doors closed. It's over. And I think once you just give yourself permission, of course, you want to keep your hands 
like you said, between shoulder and waist height, and you don't want to glue your elbows to your ribs because then you're just going to look mechanical, and that's not attractive either. But once I think you give yourself permission, like, okay, I can use my hands, then you'll relax and just be normal about it. I always say, if you're relaxed, your audience will relax, and a relaxed audience is more receptive. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's an important factor, too, that we've worked on with people for years, is to think the absolute goal of any meeting or communication is to think, how do I want people to feel by the end of this interaction? What feeling would be important for them to have? Is it that I want them to be reassured? Do I want them to be inspired? Do I want them to feel disappointed in their current behavior? How do I want them to feel? And everything I do needs to move in that direction. Now, if you want people to feel, say, for example, excited about a new project, nobody in the room will look or sound or feel more excited than you do. So you're going to set the bar. You're going to set the maximum level that people are allowed to go to. So you have to make sure that you're embodying that. So I have a fun example of this one. There's, there's a lady I worked with nearly 20 years ago. And as people have asked me since, is this a true story? It's a true story. She came to me for a one-day workshop and she said that she was struggling to get clients. And I said, okay, head up to the front of the room. Just give us your pitch and let's see what happens. And she stood at the front of the room and she said, um, hi, everyone. My name is Elaine and I run a company called The Fun Factory. And we all said, what? <laughs> what do you run? She said, yeah, it's called The Fun Factory. We sell toys and it's like a joke shop and there's all sorts of entertainment. <laughs> and we said, it sounds like the funeral factory. Like, I mean, you know, you've got you to put some joy into this because That's there's no so wonder good. that people don't want to buy it because you're, you're selling joy, but your face is not. So you've got to make sure that you are embodying it. And like you said earlier, people can feel vulnerable doing that. They don't want to sort of put themselves out there and be expressive. But if you don't, then you're going to be missing out on the whole point of the communication. So communication, importantly, is not just the words. It's the intention behind it and the feeling that you express it with as well. I can just hear my engineering Mensa Club engineers saying, well, Richard, but you don't understand that my CTO is going to ask me about all these technical details and he doesn't have any emotion in his body. He is a robot. So what do I do with that, Richard? Yeah, so, so importantly, and we get this a lot with people, what I've learned about this is that when people say that, essentially, it is they're doing mental gymnastics. They're really, it's a defense mechanism against the idea of thinking, I don't want to get rejected. Like, if I get rejected being a robot, I'm okay with that because the robot can deal with rejection. I can't. That's what they really mean. Because the funny thing is when we work with the engineers and then when we work with the CTO, they both say the same thing. They both say, oh, no, I can't be expressive in my meeting because the other guy won't like it. <laughs> so, right, right. It's exactly, you guys listening, you know this is what you say. Yeah. Somebody has to be the first person to say, look, this is how we're going to communicate from now on. And in fact, there was a guy who was very senior in an engineering company who I worked with many years back. And he said the way that he'd learned to communicate was that when he first graduated, he sat in like a, an onboarding session with his manager and he thought to himself, he looked at the manager and he thought, oh, right, that's how you do a presentation. Okay, if I ever have to do a presentation, I better do it like that. And then 20 years later, he was now the guy doing the onboarding presentation. And when new graduates came in, he realized they were sitting there thinking, 
oh, I guess that's how you do a presentation. And he said so many times he wanted to stop and say, just in case you think I know what to do with a presentation, I don't. I'm just following the guy before me and he probably didn't know either. So don't anybody sort of copy me because this is not how it should be done. So we then coached him because he wanted to be the new ripple effect, the new ripple in the pond. Importantly, to come back to the piece about why we do this, human beings do not make logical decisions. I want to say that again. Human beings do not make logical decisions. We make decisions based on emotion and we back them up with logical answers. So you can't go to your boss and say, the reason I decided to do this is because I got overexcited. You you can't do that. (laughs) Correct. But if you get excited by an idea that you want to support, what happens is emotionally you say, I'm on board with this. I'm going to support this. Then you start looking for evidence that supports that decision. Whereas if you deeply do not want to do something and there's logical reasons to do it, you'll still find logical reasons not to do it. So you have to make sure that when you are engaging people, no matter how serious the decision is, you've got to make sure that you're engaging them logically and emotionally. And to give people in the engineering world a bit of some evidence behind this, there's one engineering company in the UK who we helped them. They were bidding for big government projects, big government contracts, which they could spend a year or 18 months building up to going forward to the last uh, final presentation. And they realized that they were being judged. And there's like a formal judging process. They were being judged on their ability to do the job, the price and a behavioral assessment. Those are the three things. And they came to us because they said, when we get down to the final six or the final eight that are going up for this, everyone there can do the job. And everyone there has got basically the same price. Like we're all cutting it down to the finest profit. The only way to stand out is the behavioral assessment. So can you come and work with us? And so we worked with them on that piece of transforming how they came across, not changing their ability to do the job, not changing their price, but just changing that piece. And during the course of a year, I think we worked with them on something like seven different projects, and they won every single government project that they bid for, giving them over a billion dollars of new business in the space of that time. So this is something that it really works in the real world, because that's how human beings make decisions. And so it doesn't mean, sometimes people think, I'm going to ask them to be superly overexpressive. You don't have to be like Jim Carrey in the movie The Mask or, you know, <laughs> or anything like that. You don't have to go way overboard. But instead of that, you do need to make sure that you are making a connection with the other human being, that you're not Correct. just giving them cognitive fatigue with all the logic and information. You've got to make sure that you engage them from an emotional level as well. And so, you know, the two have to go hand in hand. Absolutely. Even if you're an engineer or even if you have a PhD in artificial intelligence, you still have to have that emotional resonance with people because, yeah, that is how we make decisions. I love the example of the fun factory and the funeral factory and (laughs) and you've got the scars. I can tell from working with highly technical clients and super smart, but humans are still humans, even if you are a technical genius. We're running out of time. And before I let you go, I really have to know, as we've talked about being congruent, being real, being authentic, the emotional impact and the body language impact. But you are also into the science of storytelling. Is the key to a good story? Is that emotional resonance or is it body language or or what are we doing wrong? And how can we become better storytellers? without going to acting school. Yeah. The key to great stories is that you need to engage three areas of the brain. So three areas of the brain that need to be engaged in a specific order to tell an engaging story, which is the survival brain first, then the emotional brain, 
then the logical brain. And you engage those three parts of the brain in that order, and people are fascinated by what you're saying, and they'll remember more of the information as well. Now, let's contrast that with the average work meeting or business presentation, where people get this overwhelm of sort of cognitive fatigue that they're feeling, where they go into a meeting and they see 4,000 slides with 25 (laughs) bullet points per slide, and it's graphs and it's data, and it gets to the point where it's just this exhausting level of data. And so they leave that meeting. They need two cups of coffee before they go into the next meeting to get even more cognitive fatigue. So when I talk about storytelling, importantly as well, sometimes people confuse this. When you tell a story, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily saying, when I was a boy, this is what I did. Or it doesn't necessarily mean, I must tell you about what happened last summer when I went and did this project. It actually doesn't mean that. You can turn any information into a story. You don't have to say once upon a time at the beginning. Here's what you do. You just need to engage the survival mind first, then the emotional mind, and then the logical mind. And the way that you go about that is to understand every single person sees themselves as the hero of their own story. What I mean by that is every person has challenges and everybody has goals and everybody wants to move away from their challenges and move towards their goals. And if you show them how to do that, they'll be compelled and they will see themselves in the story of your message. So let's say that you want to talk to them about a new project in your company. Great. So here's what you do. You say to them, remember, they're the hero. You say to them, look, I understand that right now you are experiencing these challenges and these challenges impact you like this and this and this based on the current projects that we are working on. And ultimately, if we stay where we are, that could impact you by heading us in this wrong direction, which is going to be bad for you. And we know that that's where things are headed. So what I'd love to do in the next 10 minutes is just imagine this. What if I could share with you how six months from now, your life is going to be improved by this, this, and this, such that you'll be able to achieve this, experience this, and feel this. If I could share with you how we're going to do that and how that's going to help you, would that be interesting? They say, yeah, absolutely. Let me tell you how it works. And so by doing that, you've engaged the survival mind. You're in a bad place and you're going in the wrong direction. You've engaged the emotional mind and the imagination by saying, If I could share with you something that would make your future better, how does that sound? Then the logical mind says, oh, hang on a second. Don't get too excited. Give me some proof here. Give me some evidence. And then you say, this is how it works. Here's the new initiative. And this is how this initiative is going to help you move away from challenges and towards goals. And you break it down for them. What you don't do then is give them 37 bullet points about it. Instead, you need to break it down into a journey. And every great story breaks things down into threes. There's a reason that when Aladdin rubs the lamp in the story, the genie doesn't pop out and say, you have 17 wishes, because that would be really boring. So you've got to break down the journey of your new initiative, your new project, the insights you want to share today. You need to break them into three major themes, because you've got the three musketeers, Goldilocks and the three bears. We like stories that come in threes. And you give that information to the brain, and it suddenly thinks, wow, this is an engaging meeting. This is as engaging as going to the movies. I'm going to come back to your meeting next week. So you're putting information in the form of a story. And we know that that's how human beings across many thousands of years, different civilizations, they've shared information like that. Going back to the story of Gilgamesh thousands of years ago, the way that Shakespeare put stories together, the ancient Greeks, it's all based on that general idea. Survival, emotional, and then logical is the path to take. I love this. So I know the question on everybody's mind after hearing this two-minute PhD in storytelling. You've got to get through that survival part of the brain. You've got to have emotional resonance and the logic, but don't lead with the logic. The data dump is not a story and it's not going to convince anybody. 
really this amazing content that you're sharing with us so generously. And we haven't even, I wanted to ask you, we're out of time, but for the audience to know, he has won an award for speech writing. We didn't even touch that. We didn't touch his new book, which is called Lift Your Impact, but I let Richard have a word to tell you about that. I know you're all thinking, Laura, how is this even free? I don't know. I'm just spoiling you rotten by bringing you amazing guests like Richard Newman. So Richard, would you just close by telling people how they can get more of this goodness, helpful insight for their communication? Because, you know, what's the difference between good and great in the corporate world? It's all about communication. And we've all seen people that are great communicators. Maybe they're missing some other pieces, but you listening, it's not, that's not true. You have all the competencies and you're a solid communicator, but it's like how to make that even better. So how can people get in touch with you and anything else you'd like to say? And thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks, Laura. So if people want to learn more about everything I've been sharing here, you can get all the deep dive details in the new book, which is liftyourimpacts.com. It's a hardback. You can get a Kindle version. You can get the audiobook version as well. So Lift Your Impact. You can also go to liftyourimpact.com and come find me on social media. I'm on LinkedIn. Best place to find me, Richard Newman Body Talk. And you can find me on Instagram, if you're on Instagram, at Richard Newman Speaks. All right. So thank you so much. And to everyone listening, you're welcome. Catch you on the next episode. Bye-bye. 